Okay, praise the Lord. Um, you know, before we get into our message, uh, just one final announcement. Uh, basically, is an explanation, but if you guys haven't heard already, we weren't supposed to be uh, here in Riverside over the weekend. We were supposed to be at a retreat, uh, but that retreat got canceled. So that's the first time for our church. That's never happened before, uh, but on Thursday morning, literally a day before we were going to go up, I got a call from the camp saying, the camp is not going to be functioning this weekend. You got to cancel. So <laughs> I'm like, what? But, um, but thank you so much for understanding. But it was primarily because of the weather. Uh, but uh, the Pineapple Express, the storm had a name. But <laughs> it came through. And you know what? I looked up when we booked the retreat. And we booked that site and for this weekend back in July. So there's no way we could have known about the Pineapple Express back in July. And so... Uh, thank you so much, you guys, again, for understanding. Um, it was a big letdown. Uh, I had to let our guest speaker know as well, and he was bummed out. He was so ready to go and meet all of us. Um, but just a quick update, but we are really, really working and planning to reschedule this retreat. So it looks like, most likely, we're going to be having it in April. So that's kind of where we're uh, aiming for. So uh, just keep your ears open. The date is going to be April 19th through the 21st, most likely. Nothing is finalized yet, but that's when we're hoping to reschedule. Uh, we're gonna have to just kind of re-envision the whole retreat again. Uh, but the same location, uh, hopefully very similar to what we were gonna do. But I uh, just want to let you guys know, and you should be getting an email if you did sign up for the first one uh, regarding possibly going to this next one, you know, some information about refund and all of that. You should be getting an email shortly if you signed up for the previous. Okay, well with that, uh, open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, 22 through 41, and we're going to get right into the word. But Acts 2, 22 through 41. And today's passage is going to be a little long because Peter went a little long. It's not uh, my choice, but we're just going to read the entirety of Peter's sermon. So like a true pastor, he just went on and on and on. And so we're going to read uh, the entirety of it. It's going to go all the way to verse 41. But it is so rich. This is the first gospel message in the church age, in the spirit age. If you're joining us here in person, you're going to see it behind me. If you're joining us online, welcome. You're going to see it on your screen at home. But Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Okay, this is God's word. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised them up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he was set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. 
This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is not for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls and the church was born. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we give you all the glory and we thank you so much for this time together. And Lord God, we know that you are the head of this church. And Father, you are in control and we love you. Father God, may you please, Lord God, fill this time now with your word. And Father, we know that you're you're here with us. And may you speak your word into our hearts, Lord. We want to receive, we want to hear, Father God, in a fresh new way, your gospel truths. So that we may not only have it, but we may share it. We may go out and spread it to all. Father God, so Lord, we thank you so much, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, well, we're continuing our study in the book of Acts. And last week, we saw one of the main results of the Spirit's outpouring at Pentecost. And that result is in power speech. So when Jesus promised to his disciples in Acts 1-8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses, what was that power? Okay, what was Jesus talking about? Well, I believe, and we looked at it last week, but from the text itself, I believe he was referring to empowered speech. So that is the power mainly what he was referring to. And Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, makes this clear in his description of Pentecost. When he began to tell us what actually happened, it becomes very clear this is the power that came upon them. But for example, it says in Acts 2-3, when the Holy Spirit was finally poured out upon the disciples, what looked like tongues of fire rested on each of the disciples in that upper room. And let me ask you, brothers and sisters, why tongues of fire? Have you ever asked yourselves that or thought, like, what is that? Why tongues of fire when the Spirit was poured out? Okay, why not feet of fire? Because aren't they going to be sent out into all the nations? Why weren't their feet on fire? Okay, why not hearts on fire? Okay, why didn't they see images of hearts on fire upon each disciple? Because when the Spirit came upon each of them, the fear in their hearts was burned away. Their devotion to Christ was fanned into flame. Why not hearts of fire? Well, as true as all of those things are, that was not the empowering that they received. But I believed what looked like tongues of fire appeared on each of them because every single disciple in that upper room received empowered speech. So that's the power that Jesus was promising. When my spirit is poured out on you, you're going to get speech empowered. 
And the tongues of fire was a symbol of that. And so that is clear in that text. And then later Peter, while quoting the prophet Joel, called this empowered speech what? The gift of prophecy. And so that prophecy from Joel was really about just one thing. I know it looks like it's talking about several things, but it's just really about one thing. But it is this promise that in the last days, God will pour out his spirit and this gift of prophecy will be given. So again, speech. Prophecy is about what you speak. Now last week I spent an entire Sunday message going over this prophetic gift. And if you missed it, I encourage you to go hear it online. But when the spirit was poured out, every disciple received the gift of prophecy. And this gift of prophecy, this empowered speech was not only for them. Amen? It's not just for them. And so when we read the book of Acts, we got to understand this is talking about us. More than any other book in scripture, all the scriptures for us, but especially Acts. This is talking about the church. This is the church age in the spirit age. That is now. But this was not only for them, but Peter made it so clear in that quotation from Joel, this gift was given to every single believer in the last days, men and women, young and old, great and small. So if you are a believer in Jesus Christ today, even if you're just 10 years old, my son is sitting right here, 10 years old, if you are a believer, you have the Holy Spirit within you and you have this prophetic gift. Amen? You have this prophetic gift. And it just needs to be opened, understood, and developed. But you have it. You have this ability to hear from God, to receive revelations, and then speak it forth. Do you know that it's an insult if someone gives you a special gift and you never open it and you just kind of throw it in the closet? That is an insult. And then, even worse, to go on complaining about an area of your life that that gift can address. I mean, that is an insult to the gift giver. You know, this happened recently to my dad. I mean, it wasn't that big a deal. But my brother and I, we got together during Christmas and we pulled our money to buy him a battery pack, one of those portable battery packs where you can jump your car. You just keep this battery in your trunk. Well, we bought it for uh, him. We opened it up, explained it, you know, how it works. And then we packed it up again and gave it to him. And then, sure enough, a little afterwards, maybe like a few months later, I get a call saying, Roy, I'm stuck on the side of the road. My car battery died. And I'm like, Dad, good. <laughs> because we gave you a pack, right? Do you have the portable pack? He's like, what portable pack? He totally forgot. And then I later realized he never even opened it up. It was just in his house somewhere. And so, you know, I wasn't that annoyed, but I was a little bit annoyed. And I called AAA, and then finally it was fine, right? He got his car jumped. But that's exactly how a lot of believers are with the gift of prophecy, this gift of empowered speech. God has graciously given it to us through his life, death, and resurrection, ascension, and then he poured out his spirit, and now we have this gift. Every believer, we have the gift of prophecy, and how many of us have never opened it? We've never understood it. We've never taken the time to even understand or develop it. And so we all have this gift. And what is the purpose of this gift? It is to speak out with the Spirit's help whatever God reveals to us. Whatever God reveals to us. And although God can reveal many different things to believers through this gift, this is what we see in the New Testament, God can reveal anything, whatever he wants. And when we speak it out, we are exercising that gift. 
So God can reveal anything, and yet when you look at Acts chapter 2, we see the main revelation that God will give to us, that he expects us to speak out. So what is this main revelation? It is the gospel. Amen? So by far, when we receive a revelation from God to speak it out, it will be something regarding the gospel. And God, as he gives that to us, as we speak it out, he will empower it. He will empower it. So it is the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. It is the good news that changes everything. It is the gospel that saves us. And the 120 disciples at Pentecost, they all began to proclaim the gospel when the Spirit came upon them. Okay, they literally experienced this gift. They began to proclaim it in different languages, not their own, but it was in the languages of all the visitors in Jerusalem at that time. They began to proclaim the gospel. Peter, Peter also received the baptism of the Spirit and he received the gift of prophecy. And then what did Peter do? After receiving the gift of prophecy, he stood up in downtown Jerusalem in front of a gigantic crowd, thousands of people, and then he proclaimed the gospel. The Spirit empowered him to proclaim the gospel. So again, another clear picture of what does God reveal? What, what is he going to give us to speak out? Oftentimes, it'll be the gospel. So here, God may not call us to declare the gospel before a huge crowd like Peter Okay, most of us, we're not going to be called to do that. But for all of us, if you're a believer, for all of us, he will call you to declare the gospel in front of your classmates, in front of your family members, your coworkers. And brothers and sisters, you need to understand, God has set your tongue on fire. Okay, you have this gift. Okay, this is not talking about some ancient story about some ancient Christians, but this is talking about us in the church age. God will empower your speech to declare the gospel to your oikos, to the people around you. So when we read the book of Acts, this is not just a story about special Christians a long time ago. Yes, it is a historical theological narrative on the Christian movement. But what we read about in the book of Acts is talking about spiritual realities that we have. I just want to really drive this home. But this is talking about us. Okay, you have this empowered speech. And God will reveal the gospel to you. You're going to be sitting at a dinner party. Okay, maybe some family members who don't believe. And then suddenly, as they're talking about things, the Spirit is going to reveal something to you. You're going to just get a verse. You're going to get some kind of a, a thought in your head. And then God's going to expect you to share it. Share it. Right there at dinner. Just, just say it. Okay, God is giving you something to say. It might be the gospel message or maybe something that will open up an opportunity to share the gospel message. But God poured out the spirit and gave this ability to all the believers. So what we read in the book of Acts is describing spiritual realities for every believer. And so in many ways, when we read the book of Acts, this is really like a manual. Okay, we should read it kind of like a manual for our lives. Luke said, I write these things, O Theophilus, so that you may be certain of your faith. Right? These are things that is pertaining to your faith. So it's the same for us. As we read the book of Acts, this is regarding our faith. Okay, God, have you given me this gift? Okay, can I have this tongue of fire? This empowered speech? Are you going to reveal the gospel to me in new ways? I mean, we should be asking these things. Okay, how do we do this? Well, the book of Acts will show us. So today... 
we're going to be looking at the gospel that Peter was empowered to declare okay, in the last days. And when you look at the gospel that he began to declare, we see really neatly laid out three different parts to his uh, gospel. Three different parts. But he talks about gospel events and then gospel demands and then finally gospel promises. And a moment ago, I said that we should read the book of Acts as a how-to manual, right? Yes, it is a historical narrative. It is a theological work, but it can also be a how-to manual. Well, especially in this passage, we should read it like that. As we look through how Peter explained the gospel, we can look at, oh, this is how we can do it as well. We can see how we can share the gospel. And for the sake of time, we're not going to parse every verb in this sermon. We're not going to split every theological hair. But what I want us to do is just kind of get the flow of the overall message that Peter gave. To see the flow of his gospel presentation and to see all the essential parts in his gospel presentation. Why? So that you and I could do the same. Okay, we can share the same gospel empowered by the Spirit. And then, if, and then uh, we're going to look at uh, just maybe one other way that we can present the gospel. So that's what I want to do today. Okay, so first, the gospel events. Okay, this is the first part of Peter's sermon. Now, Peter's speech in Acts 2 is most likely not the entire speech. Okay, we don't get the whole thing. This is a condensed sum- summary of what he preached. But it's an accurate summary. And it has specific statements that Peter actually made. And we know that this was a summary because Luke said in Acts 2.40, and with many words, Peter bore witness and continued to exhort them. So we don't get the whole thing, right? There were a lot of other things he said. So Luke was being selective here. But everything that Luke included in this sermon is there because it is absolutely vital if you're going to present the gospel. These are the vital parts of any gospel presentation. And so the first thing we see, the first vital part of a gospel presentation are the gospel events, the gospel events and their meaning. So when we share the gospel with anyone, it is vital that at some point, right, as you're talking to your family member, your coworker, your classmate, at some point, you need to begin to tell them the gospel events and the meaning of those events. And until we do, we haven't shared the gospel. So we got to share the gospel events. So this is what we see Peter doing. And so what do we mean by gospel events? Okay, we're talking about Jesus' life, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, and then Peter included Jesus' exaltation. So Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and exaltation. And notice how the first word in Peter's gospel presentation is Jesus. Is Jesus. Now, when we share the gospel, okay, I said this, is, this can be a how-to manual, right? It doesn't mean we have to do it exactly that way. You don't have to start with the word Jesus. It's not a bad place to start. But this is how Peter started. Peter began with Jesus. And then he went immediately into Jesus' life and the meaning of his life. So look at verse 22. Okay, this is the first gospel event, Jesus' life. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested, in other words, authenticated. Okay, a man proven or confirmed to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. So here, Peter starts out with Jesus' life. This is the first gospel event. 
And he keeps it very brief. He's only mentioning he's only what they need to hear, right? He doesn't go into the whole birth story and Joseph and Mary. He doesn't talk about any of that. Just exactly what they need to hear. So this is what he said. Jesus was a real man. He came from a real place, Nazareth. So here's the first thing. And again, how to, right? When you share the gospel, we need to tell people Jesus is a real person. Amen? So this is what Peter's starting with. Jesus is a real person. It's important to make that clear when you're sharing the gospel. Jesus is a real person who lived in history. He is not a symbol. He is not an archetype. He is not a myth. He is a real person. But that's not all. Peter then gave the meaning of Jesus' life. He said Jesus worked miracles. That's what the words mighty works, wonders, and signs are referring to. So Jesus, this real person, he lived in a real town. He worked miracles. And why is this important? Because the miracles authenticated or proved him to be from God. It proved that he came from God. He was not just any man born in some town. He actually came from God. And why do miracles prove that Jesus came from God? Okay, why? why? Because the only way Jesus could have done these wonders and signs, and if we're honest, most of us have never seen any miracle in front of us, but Jesus performed miracle after miracle during his ministry. And the only way he could have done these miracles that healed people, fed people, changed their lives is if he came from God. That's the only way. The demons can do tricks. They can perform what look like miracles, but they do not transform lives the way Jesus did for the glory of God. So the only reason he could have done this is if he came from God. And so this is what Peter is saying. Jesus is a real person from a real time, a town, and then he came from God. We know because he did miracles. And so again, when we share the gospel, brothers and sisters, we want to make sure we affirm these things. Jesus is a real person who actually lived in history and he came from God. That's simple enough, right? And if you want, you can mention the proof of how we know he came from God. He did miracles. And by the way, no one in ancient times, including his enemies, denied that Jesus did miracles. Did you know that? There's been no denial that Jesus did miracles. Even his enemies did not deny it. And according to the New Testament, this proved that he's from God. So maybe when you're sharing the gospel, you could mention that. So he came from God. And Peter didn't make this point, but we can also add to that. We know from the rest of the New Testament, he also is God. He didn't just come from God, but Jesus, this real person who lived in a real place, he is God. So is that clear? That's the first gospel event. Okay, second gospel event, Jesus' death. Peter goes straight into Jesus' death. Again, he doesn't talk about everything, right? The whippings and the crown of thorns. He doesn't elaborate. He just gets only to the point. Verse 23. This Jesus, who's a real person who came from God, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So Jesus, this real man who lived in Israel doing miraculous things, was killed. So this is the second gospel event. He didn't die in his sleep. He didn't have an accident and died from the injuries. He was killed by the Jews and Romans on a Roman cross. Without a doubt, he was killed. And so again, when we share the gospel, we must mention Jesus died. He was killed. This real person who lived, 
He did miracles. He came from God. He died. He was murdered. And Peter doesn't explain the meaning of his death directly here. This is going to unfold more in the book of Acts. But he implies, though, the meaning. He points to it. Look again at verse 23. Jesus was delivered up. In other words, he was killed according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In other words, when Jesus was killed, that was according to God's plan. See, Jesus' death was not a project that went terribly wrong. <laughs> right? He wasn't caught off guard. Oh my gosh, I didn't plan this. It wasn't a suicide mission of a crazy man. But no, when he was killed, it was a divine purpose behind it. There was a divine purpose behind it. And so what was this purpose? What was this plan that Peter's kind of pointing to? Here it is. It was for Jesus to pay the penalty for our sins as our substitute. See, this is getting to the heart of the gospel now. He mentioned Jesus' life. Just real quick, who he is. He was real, came from God. Now he was killed, but it wasn't an accident. It wasn't a suicide mission. It was according to the plan of God. What was that plan? To pay for the penalty of our sins as our substitute. So this is the meaning of his death. This is the heart of the gospel. So again, when we share the gospel with someone, at some point, right, you don't need to start out with this, but as you're just kind of talking, you need to tell them about Jesus' death and the meaning behind it. You know, do you know why Jesus died? He died for your sins. We put him on the cross. He died in our place. Because the Bible says, the wages, what we earn with our sins is death. Everyone deserves death who sins. Well, Jesus took it in our place. Okay, that needs to be told. So Jesus died according to God's plan. Why? So that he would pay the penalty for our sins as our substitute. And so if we don't share that, we have not shared the gospel, brothers and sisters. So you just see how this is just unfolding step by step. Okay, number three, the third gospel event that Peter declared was Jesus' resurrection. So now he moves immediately to Jesus' resurrection. Now, this is the longest part of Peter's gospel presentation. It could be the longest part in ours as well, right? You can spend a lot of time on this. But Peter spent the most time on the resurrection for a good reason. And here's why he spent the most time. It's because pretty much everyone listening to him, all 3,000 Jewish men plus women and children, they already knew about Jesus' life. Jesus was famous by this point. They already knew that there was this rabbi. He did a lot of miracles. He taught a bunch of stuff. They knew about his life. They also knew about Jesus' death. In fact, many of them actually saw it. Some of them were actually there when, when he was on trial, and they were the ones yelling, crucify him, crucify him. They were there. This wasn't a long time ago. That's why Peter said in verse 23, you crucified him. Crowd, it's your fault. You guys played a part. So what am I saying? They knew very well Jesus' life. They knew Jesus' death. But what did they not know? Jesus' resurrection. They had no clue that he had come back to life. And so Peter spends a long time on this. This is the bulk of his sermon. So Peter said in Acts 2.24, God raised him up loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So Peter, without mixing any words, there's no confusion, ambiguity. Peter said God raised him back to life from the dead. 
And when we share the gospel, brothers and sisters, we got to be as clear as Peter. At some point, you got to tell them he was killed because of us, our sins, and then God raised him back to life. See, if you only tell someone Jesus loves you and he died for you, if you only tell them that, I mean, that's part of the gospel. But if you end there and you don't say anything else, do you know that's a sub-Christian gospel? That is a sub-Christian message. And the reason why I say that is because every other religion can say the same thing. Oh yeah, that founder died for you. He loved, he loved you so much, he died for you. He gave his life for you. So for example, any other religion, Buddha loves you. Right, Buddha loved you so much, he sacrificed his entire life to learn about enlightenment, and now he's passed it on to you, right? Or Muhammad loves you, he loved you so much, he lived his entire life wrestling with God, right? Islam means, you know, someone who struggles with God, he struggled with God to receive God's teachings, Allah's teachings, and now he's passed it on to you, right? He loves you. Now, let's suppose those statements are true. I doubt it, but let's say they're true then what's the difference between that and your gospel message? Oh, Jesus loves you. He died for you. Now, that's true. But you can't end there, brothers and sisters. You have something else you must share. You must share Jesus loves you, and he died for you, and then he came back to life. Amen? This is Peter's gospel. He came back to life. And why is that so important? Because that proves that Jesus indeed came from God, and everything he said he was going to do, he did. Everything he said about himself, our sin, God's judgment, God's salvation is true. Everything that he said about his salvation is true. That is the resurrection. You know, I like what one pastor said. He said Jesus' death was God's payment for our sins. Well, Jesus' resurrection is the receipt, is the proof that God paid it. So that's wonderful that he paid for our sins, but where's the receipt, right? Where's the proof? It's the resurrection. So that's the meaning of the resurrection. So do you, do you see how important it is? And I think so many Christians, we, we try to share the gospel and go, oh, Jesus loves you so much, he died for you, but we never mention the resurrection. You must mention Jesus rose back to life. He proved, without a doubt, everything he did is true. And if you don't mention it, that's a sub-Christian message. It's not Christian fully. So for Peter, Jesus' resurrection was so important, he didn't just now mention it. He goes on now for several verses, offering proofs of the resurrection. He talks about witnesses to the resurrection. Okay, this is his evidence. These are his proofs of the resurrection. And in these verses, um, 25 onward, he mentions two different witnesses to the resurrection. First he mentions Old Testament prophets, and then he mentions New Testament apostles. So these are the witnesses. So for the sake of time, we don't have time to dig into these things, let me just mention them. But first, Old Testament prophets. It says in verses 25 to 28, you can read it on your own. But here Peter, he says, David was an Old Testament prophet, and he prophesied that when the Messiah comes, the Messiah will resurrect again. So he said that, from Psalm 16. And then after quoting that prophecy in Psalm 16, Peter said this. Look at verse 31. He, he makes it very clear. Okay, why is he sharing this prophecy from David? Verse 31. David, being a prophet, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. 
So Peter, he knew his audience, so he's tailoring this gospel message to his audience. So again, how-to manual, right? We need to also understand who we're talking to and cater our presentation to our audience. But Peter, he's catering this now to a Jewish audience. He knew that this is a crowd of Jewish uh, religious people. They're very devout. That's why they're in Jerusalem celebrating a festival. And so these people, they all know David. They love King David. King David is their greatest hero. They know what David said. They know Psalm 16. So Peter now is taking this prophecy from Psalm 16 saying, look, David as a prophet talked about Jesus' resurrection. And so when Peter applied this prophecy to Jesus, at a minimum, these Jewish men would have done what? It would have made them stop in their tracks, right? They would have paused and asked, wait a minute, is this prophecy that I grew up memorizing as a kid, is this really about Jesus? Right? Did God really raise Jesus from the dead? It, w- it would make them pause. So that was one kind of proof for the resurrection that Peter offered. Look, you know these prophecies. You grew up memorizing these. Okay, this is talking about Jesus' resurrection. Here's the other kind of proof he gave, the witness of the apostles, including Peter's own witness. So look at verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So not only David and Old Testament prophets talking about this way back when, but we saw it, right? We actually saw Jesus risen again. So Peter was saying, I saw Jesus raised back to life, and not just me, but all these disciples here that you see praying in other languages and preaching the gospel in other languages, they saw Jesus as well. You know, we don't, I don't think we realize the impact of that. But imagine if you knew somebody, right? You just know somebody at your school, at your work, and you know that they were sick and they died. And then you start hearing a rumor that that person came back to life. Okay? You're like, what? What, what a crazy rumor. He came back to life? And then you go into like a lecture hall or let's say your, your workplace and there's like a hundred people that you kind of know, Right? A hundred people are there, your coworkers or your classmates, and then you start going around asking them, hey, what, what is this rumor about this person coming back to life? I mean, we were all at the funeral. And they go, it's true. Every single person you talk to, all hundred of them, it's true. We saw this person. He's, he's alive again. He's alive again. I mean, would that make you pause? <laughs> all hundred people say, yes, this person came back to life. I think so. Right? So just put yourself in the shoes of this crowd. They're like, all of you guys saw him alive? Yeah, we all saw him. Okay, this is what Peter is saying. This is the evidence he's giving. Okay, this is proof of the resurrection. Okay, you would be impacted as well. It's like, really? All of you saw him alive. We all saw him alive. So again, when we present the gospel, okay, we might not spend as much time as Peter did on the resurrection but for sure, you must mention the resurrection. And like Peter, it might be worth our time to mention proofs of the resurrection. Especially because we live in a far more skeptical age than he did. We live in a very skeptical age. But it's worth our time to learn the proofs for the resurrection. Okay, it's beyond the scope of this message to get into what these proofs are. But I've preached on these proofs more than once at our church. You can find these proofs everywhere online. There are entire books written on these evidences and proofs for the resurrection. So it's well worth your time to study these evidences. I, I encourage you, if you care about the salvation of your family members, classmates, people in your life, 
then study, become familiar with evidences for the resurrection. Okay, this is what makes the Christian gospel Christian, uniquely Christian. We serve and believe in a savior who died and came back to life. The resurrection is what anchors our entire faith in a historical event. This is utterly unique. No other religion is based on a historical event that can be verified or unverified. But the Christian faith is not based on a dream or a vision or an enlightened state of mind like so many other religions, like all other religions. It's not based on things that you can't prove or disprove. I mean, how can I prove or verify whether someone had a dream? I can't prove that. But Christianity is utterly unique. Why? Because it's based on a real person. Again, Peter, going back to his gospel, right? A real person who lived in a real place. He was publicly killed. Even secular historians all acknowledge that. And he came back to life. Those are historical events, brothers and sisters. You can verify that. If that indeed happened, you can find evidence for that. And people have. There's a lot. There's a lot of evidence for it. So it's life, death, and resurrection. Okay, that is the heart of the gospel. So these are the gospel events that Peter shared. And then finally, he mentioned one more gospel event. Jesus' exaltation. Okay, this is the fourth gospel event. Now, not every gospel presentation in the New Testament mentions Jesus' exaltation. Okay, not, not every person who shares the gospel mentions this. But Peter mentioned it because it directly explained what was happening at Pentecost. So again, he's tailoring it to his audience, right? They just saw this crazy thing, this outpouring of the Spirit, hearing the gospel in all their languages. People appear drunk to them. Peter's saying, let me tell you. So he's saying, Jesus' exaltation is the explanation. So look at verse 33. Being therefore exalted, right, talking about Jesus, Jesus exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has now poured out this spirit that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So Peter wanted to explain. Yeah, there's something else that happened to Jesus. He was exalted. And then from there, he poured out his spirit. And then in verses 34 through 36, Peter goes back to quoting Old Testament prophecy. It's from David again. The first one was from Psalm 16. This is now from Psalm 110. Again, you can read it on your own. But Peter argued from this Old Testament prophecy, something very, something very important. So Jesus was exalted, poured out his spirit, and because of that, he fulfilled prophecy in the Old Testament, and he proved that he is not just the Savior, he is what? He's Lord. He is Lord. So this is the meaning of his exaltation. Jesus is Lord. He was exalted. He poured out the spirit on, on all flesh. Why? Because he is Lord. And so again, Manuel, when we share the gospel at some point, we need to also share, you know what? This Jesus I'm talking about, he's not just like some firefighter who's going to rescue us from a fire, but he is Lord. And he is coming back again to judge the world. Right? He is Lord. And this point is especially important when a person is getting to that place of really opening their hearts to receive Christ. Okay, maybe you know somebody right now. You've been talking with them. You're kind of like sharing the gospel whenever you can. Maybe they're getting very open in their hearts. Well, this is what you need to share. You need to begin to tell them, Jesus that I'm talking about with you, 
He's actually Lord. He is the Lord. He's coming back to judge this world. They need to know that. Why? Because they need to know who they're going to accept, right? Who they're going to trust when they finally accept him. He's Lord. He's not an invisible buddy, an invisible best friend you never had, right? He's not a business partner to help you build your business. He's not a spiritual therapist who's going to be there when you're struggling with your emotions. I mean, he can do those things, but he is Lord, and he's going to expect you to follow him when you come to faith in him. He's going to be your leader. He's going to be your Lord. So Peter makes this clear. He was exalted. He is Lord. David prophesied. Okay, my Lord said to his, to his Lord, I will make your enemies a footstool. He is Lord. He's going to come to judge and conquer his enemies. So is this clear? These are the gospel events. If you're going to share the gospel, these things have to be there. So in the first gospel message ever preached in the church age, you see four gospel events. Jesus' life, death, resurrection, exaltation, and the meaning behind all of them. So in case you're kind of not tracking, maybe you're feeling a little lost, let me just summarize each of them again in a, in a very brief sentence, okay? So when you share the gospel, you must mention gospel events. Okay, this is the heart of the gospel. So first, Jesus' life. Jesus is a real person. He came from God. He is God. Okay, somewhere you, you must share that. Second, Jesus' death. Jesus died on the cross to take the penalty for our sins as our substitute. You must share that. Number three, Jesus' resurrection. Jesus, after being killed, was raised back to life to prove he is God and that he really did pay for our sins. That's the receipt. That's the proof. His resurrection. Number four, Jesus' exaltation. He's Lord. And if you receive him, he's going to expect you to follow him. He's Lord. Is that simple enough? Is that clear? Now, I know this, this can seem like a lie, and you're thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to like blank, I'm going to go blind when I'm trying to like share the gospel to my classmate, right? How do I remember all this? Well, let me just kind of summarize it even more, okay? I think that was a pretty concise summary, but let me even summarize it even more into like a one-minute version. I think every single Christian should have a one-hour gospel, right? You should be able to explain it for about a full hour, all the ins and outs of it, and a one-minute version, in a split second, you should be able to just summarize all this in one minute, maybe less. But here's the way I would summarize it. This is the definition of the gospel that I use. But if anybody says, what's the gospel? What are you talking about? I would just say, here it is. It's the good news that Jesus saves sinners through his life, death, and resurrection. And you can say that's not all it is. The gospel is bigger than that, but that's the, the heart of it, right? Jesus saves sinners through his life, death, and resurrection is good news. And so that basically in one minute, less than that, will summarize everything Peter said right there. So you should have ready a one-hour gospel and a one-minute gospel. We should all just have it ready. The next time anybody asks you, what, what, do, you, what do you believe? Like, what, what do you talk about at church, the good news? Well, here it is. Jesus saves sinners through his life, death, and resurrection. And then from there, you can jump off, right, into a lot of things. Okay, who's Jesus? Well, he's God. He was real. Okay, well, okay who, are, who are the sinners? Well, we are. Why are we sinners? Okay, why do we need to be saved? Okay, why, why does his life, death, and resurrection save us? I mean, there's so many things you can go from that definition into all these things, right? So this is the heart of the gospel. And the sooner we learn it, the, the quicker we can begin to share it with everyone we know.
Now, after these gospel events, Peter then declared gospel demands and then gospel promises, and these will be much quicker. We'll just briefly look at these. But next, Peter declared gospel demands. Look at verse 37 and 38. Now, when they heard this, the heart of the gospel, right? Those gospel events and the meaning. They were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So hearing these gospel events, that alone, because Peter was uh, empowered by the spirit, right? That alone convicted them. It cut their hearts. In other words, they were deeply convicted by their sin. In particular, their sin of killing Jesus. They were a part of that. But they were convicted by that sin and they were moved to ask, what should we do? Peter, what are we going to do? And if you ever are talking to, a, again, somebody in your life and they, get, they ask you that question, you have really got them now, <laughs> right? What should we do? Okay, well, then, then what should I do, right? I've actually had somebody ask that to me as I'm sharing with them. Like, like okay, fine, what do I do then? What do I do, right? Amen, I'm glad you asked. Well, here, Peter answers that by giving the gospel demands, okay? Gospel demands, and this will be quick. Look at verse 38. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. So Peter says, now that you've heard the gospel, the gospel has demands. There are some things it expects you to do. Okay, first, he says, repent. You must repent. And repentance is an old word that a lot of people don't even know what it means anymore. Okay, repent. What does that mean? Feel really, really bad? What does that mean? Okay, hit myself, whip myself? No, it means a total change in your thinking. Okay, just memorize that. Metanoia. It just means a total change in your thinking. The way you think about Jesus, the way you see yourself, the way you see sin, the way you see others, the way you see God, the way you see the world, the way you see your own purpose in life, everything is now transformed. That is repentance. It is a total change in thinking. I'm thinking about my life in this way and I'm going in this direction. Nope, I'm going this way now. Why? Because I had a total change in thinking. I saw myself in this way. I see myself doing this. Nope, I've changed my thinking. I'm going this way. That is repentance. It is a total change in thinking. Peter said the gospel demands it. It demands it. If you're going to now become a follower of Christ and become a Christian, it demands it. You don't have to use that word when you're sharing your faith, but just, just know God expects repentance. And then second, Peter said, be baptized. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. In other words, publicly testify that you have now changed allegiance. Okay, you once were committed to all these other things in your old life. Now you're committed to Christ. You have completely changed your allegiance. And by the way, for a crowd of Jewish men and women listening to this, this would have been humiliating to be told that they need to get baptized in the name of Christ. Okay, why would that have been humiliating? It's because only Gentiles were water baptized when they converted to Judaism in ancient times. Jewish people were, were not water baptized because they were born Jews. They grew up in the Jew, Jewish faith. They were part of the covenant people. But when a Gentile converted, they had to get water baptized to show that they were changing allegiance now. And Peter was saying to all these Jews, you guys are like unbelieving Gentiles. You do what unbelieving Gentiles do. You get baptized. 
And by the way, you get baptized in the name of Jesus, this person that you crucified. You get baptized in his name. Utterly humiliating, utterly humbling. And yet the gospel demands it. It demands it. And so it was a public declaration of changing your allegiance. That's what this baptism represented. Along with cleansing and new life, right? Death and new life. But publicly to them, these Jews, it would have represented change of allegiance. There's no going back after this. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm a part of this sect, <laughs> right? Some people even call it a cult, but I'm a part of this now. There's no going back. The gospel demands it. So again, when you share the gospel, you don't need to use the word demand, but just know in your head, as the person is becoming more open, you need to get them to that point to actually repent, to change their thinking on all this, on their lives, on God, on Jesus, and to publicly declare their change of allegiance. Now, let me make a very quick point here, but there are certain cult groups like the International Church of Christ, the ICOC. They're very active on the college campuses, so you college students, watch out, right? Be careful of the ICOC. But there are cult groups out there, and they take verses like Acts 2.38, and they say, see, water baptism is required for salvation. You must be baptized in order to be saved. That is in their teachings, and that is a false teaching. Because the Bible is always interpreted by the Bible. So you don't just take one little isolated verse and build everything on top of that. No, you look at many verses on the same topic and the Bible will interpret the Bible. And although Peter's statement here makes it seem like water baptism is necessary for salvation, right? If you only read what Peter said, it kind of looks like that. You need to be baptized to be saved. But when you read on and look at many New Testament passages on baptism, you realize, oh, that's not true. That's not true. Because in the rest of the New Testament, we learn that only repentance and faith in Christ is what saves you. It is by grace through faith alone. So for example, Paul said in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart and get baptized, no, there's no baptism. If you just confess and believe in your heart that he is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's all you have to do. Right? It's by grace through faith alone. So then what's water baptism? Then why did Peter make it seem so important for salvation? Well, again, it's just the outward expression of a faith you already have. Peter's saying it's so important that it, it just comes right after salvation. It's the outward expression of a saving faith you already have. I recently shared this with somebody, but it's kind of like a wedding ceremony. But when a couple gets married at their wedding ceremony, does that produce committed love in the couple? Is that where they receive committed love? No. The wedding is an outward expression of a couple that already has committed love. It's because they already have the reality of that committed love. They're getting married, right? So it's the same thing. Baptism doesn't produce salvation. It's just an outward expression of a salvation you already have. You already have that saving faith. And so now I want to get baptized. I want to publicly declare to my family and friends and my church that I'm baptized. I'm married to Jesus. It's the same thing as a wedding ceremony. So these are the gospel demands. Repentance, and then shortly after salvation, get baptized. Okay, prove, testify to everyone you know that you've changed your allegiance. And then finally, we're gonna end with this. Peter declared gospel promises. Look at verses 38 through 39. Gospel promises. He said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Christ. And then he says, 
for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So here Peter ended his gospel presentation with a glorious, deeply encouraging promise of two things. Forgiveness of their sins. Specifically the sin of taking part in Jesus' death. He forgiveness of this gross, unimaginable sin and the gift of the Holy Spirit. See all these disciples who you thought were drunk? They're filled with joy and power. They're declaring the gospel in other languages. Do you see the spirit on them? You can have the same spirit. This is what Peter is saying. You can have this same gift of the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God. You can have him too. So do you see how encouraging this is? So at the end of Peter's gospel presentation, he reminds all of us the gospel is ultimately very good news. Amen? It's very, very good news. See, all that stuff before that sounded like bad news, that was there because it's true, but also to make the gospel very good news, right? The, the good news is only good because you, there, you have bad news first, right? So the gospel is very good news. Peter ends on this high note. You're gonna receive forgiveness of sin and the gift of the Holy Spirit. So for us as well, when we share the gospel, you need to share it in a way where people will know, wow, this is good news. It's good news. I, I, I actually get it. You've explained the bad news and that's why I see the good news now. See, if you don't help them to see the bad news, they're gonna be like, oh, what is that? I don't, I don't need it. <laughs> but if you help them to see the bad news, then they're gonna see the good news. They're gonna see the good news. So we must share it in a way where it's good. And you know, I've struggled, I've struggled with this myself. You know, recently, uh, a little funny story, but my, uh, my dad and all of us were at a dinner and we were gonna, you know, just kind of hang out. And suddenly my dad started talking about something, so I wanted to share the gospel with him, right? And so I'm kind of like writing some, some stuff down on a napkin, right? Some things that, that I was gonna show him. I my brother's looking at me and he's like, what is that? I'm like, oh, I'm gonna go share the gospel, right? Share this with, my, you know, with our dad. And then my brother's like, almost kind of like a, like a, you know, like a coach ready to like send in the boxer into the boxing ring, right? He's like, all right, man, go get him, go get him, right? <laughs> I'm like, go get him? <laughs> like, like, that's not the spirit, right? I'm not gonna go get him. But I was kind of feeling that. I'm like, yeah, let me go get him. But, but my brother's like, yeah, go get him, right? Go get him, go get him with that. Like, you know, <laughs> that gospel. But that's not the spirit. Again, look at Peter. He ends with this incredible high note. Okay, you're gonna be blessed. If you understand this and receive it in your heart, you're going to be blessed. So this is what gave power to Peter's gospel presentation. Is that he clearly communicated the bad news so that when the good news was given, it was truly good. It was very good. But this was the power of the gospel. And it wasn't just that it was good news, but Peter himself experienced the good news. He himself was compelled he was transformed and now compelled by the good news himself. And so in closing, I want to encourage you, if you're going to share the gospel in this kind of spirit-empowered way, you yourself need to experience it. You yourself need to understand it. So here's a little plug for that gospel foundations class again. But, but if you go to that class, if you haven't ever gone through that material, you will understand the good news. But you yourself need to experience it. And once you experience the good news, what happens? You must share it. Amen? Any good news worth sharing 
or any good news that's good is worth sharing. You will share it. You know, my kids, I see it all the time, but sometimes they'll get a gift from their grandparents and it comes in the mail and they can't wait, right? All day long, they're waiting for me to come home so they, they can tell me. And I could just tell right away. I walk into the house with my bag. Before I even set it down, my kids run up to me, especially my youngest son. <laughs> and, and you could just see on his face, <sighs> I'm like, what's going on? Are you okay, right? Like, did you, did you have dinner yet? Like, did you eat? Like, what's going on? And I, and I could just tell, like, there's something they got to tell me. And then sure enough, it's like, did you know? Did you hear? The birthday gift came from grandma or whatever, right? I was like, no, I didn't know. Thank you for sharing. But it is news that they want to share, right? It is good. And so when the news is good enough, when it is big enough, it will change everything. And so in closing, I want to strongly encourage you, go back and meditate on the gospel facts again, the gospel events the gospel demands, and most of all, the gospel promises. And here again, in your spirit, how good it is. When the news is big enough, it will change everything. Okay, that's a quote from Mike, Michael Horton. He's an author and theologian. Teaches at a seminary. But it's true. Even in my own life, there were certain points when significant news broke into my life, and it changed everything. I had a younger brother who passed away when I was just in college, a junior in college, and when I got that phone call from my mom, it changed everything. It changed my life. That news was so big, it changed me. Later, fast forward, after I got married, when my wife told me she was pregnant with our first son, Joshua, that changed me. That changed all of our lives. But when the news is big enough, it will change everything. So we need to experience that in a fresh way and then share it. Amen? So let's just come before the Lord. I know we covered a lot, but it was Peter's fault. <laughs> he gave a long sermon there. But it was so rich. It is so rich. It is the gospel message. But the gospel events, Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and his exaltation. The gospel demands of repentance and be baptized. And then finally, the gospel promises your sins will be forgiven and you will receive the very spirit of God himself. He will come upon you. He will fill you you will receive the Spirit. When's the last time you shared the gospel like that? No wonder 3,000 people were converted in one day and got added to the church. Amen. Amen. Oh, I pray that God would do that kind of revival work again, that God would bring that kind of salvation again. 3,000 souls in one day. Amen. So let's just come before him right now. Let's just, we're gonna have to come to a close soon, but let's just briefly for a minute or two, let's just respond to his word, respond to his gospel message. Let's pray what I said just a moment ago. Make the news fresh again. Let's pray that. Lord, can you make the news fresh again? Because when the news is big enough, it changes everything. And this is the biggest news of all.